Welcome to Confronting Christian Nationalism, a podcast series that explores the rise of Christian nationalism in America and what churches and individuals can do to confront it. I'm your host, Daniel Dietrich. Do you support the United States becoming a Christian nationalist country? Yeah, I do. In November, I do. we're going to take our state back. My God will make it so. The church is supposed to direct the government. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. Obey the laws of the government because God is obeying the government. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. In episodes one and two, we heard about what Christian nationalism is, what it's not, and how it functions in people's lives. We've heard the theological critique of Christian nationalism, and we've heard about its white supremacist roots. But how do people get drawn into Christian nationalism in the first place? What is attractive about it? In this episode, we explore five on-ramps to Christian nationalism, including the myth that America was founded as a Christian nation, and the belief that some Christians hold that the U.S. is the new Israel. To confront Christian nationalism, and to help our neighbors escape its grasp, we need to understand the reasons people are drawn to it. So we're going to hear straight from self-identified Christian nationalists, including a really troubling sermon from Congresswoman Lauren Boebert about how the church is supposed to direct the government. You heard a few seconds of that in the intro. If you didn't grow up in these streams of Christianity, the stuff you're about to hear can seem pretty out there, pretty extreme. But for millions of Christians in America, especially those in the more charismatic movements, these underlying ideas, these on-ramps, are very familiar. It's possible that you grew up in one of these streams and didn't realize that it fed into the river of Christian nationalism. So whether this is all new or just a new perspective, we're hoping you'll come away with a better understanding of why people are drawn to Christian nationalism. This segment comes from a live presentation of the Vote Common Good Tour from October 2022 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Here's Doug Padgett to guide us through the five streams or five on-ramps to Christian nationalism. What's the motivation for people to get into Christian nationalism? What's attractive about it? You saw what it is, kind of maybe what it isn't, or maybe you're starting to frame it up and you realize, okay, it's this complex thing. So what is it that moves somebody? How does somebody end up holding those views that put you on the spectrum or then holding views that lead you somewhere? How do people get there? That's a really important question. And I think for deep empathy and for deep engagement, it's good for us to know people have good reasons, right? It's, you can't simply just say, I don't know, they're just wacky. It's not just wacky. There's reasons for them that are very good reasons for them. And we'll talk about some of this in a bit. In fact, I would say it's always good to ask people three questions if you're in trying to deep understanding mode. Three questions are really helpful. One of those, of course, is what do you believe and you know, if, you're, if you know like deep listening and empathic listening, you have to ask that question and then really wait for them to answer without inserting in your head, like I'm pretty sure I know what you believe, waiting for them to say it. So what is great? Why do you believe it? Super important. Tell me a bit about the rationale. How did you come to this? Then there's a third question. It's harder to just ask. You really have to find it by listening to a lot of things. And that's the question, what function does that belief play in your life? What is it doing for you? How does it operate? What good is it bringing you? So everyone's beliefs, like we might live with some beliefs we don't really like and can't really get rid of them, but they're doing something. 
They're in our lives functioning in some way. So I want to help you sort of get to some of each of those, each of those questions. I've put together a list of five streams that I think come together into the river of Christian nationalism. Some people might take three streams on their way in. Some people maybe just one, some all five. One of those is, well, the founding of the country. We started as a Christian nation, didn't we? So just the, some people love an origin story, right? They, like, they're not just going to watch Batman. They're going to watch Where Did Batman Come From? This is going to be the origin story of Spider-Man, right? Love a good origin story. And for some people, that's a big question. You'll hear it in some of the examples we're going to show. A second stream people take is confusion between church and people. Churches sometimes add to this confusion. Like sometimes pastors will talk about the reality that churches aren't institutions. They're not big campuses like this. They're not buildings. Churches are the people. So you can start to hear how someone would say, we the people, the government is we the people. Hey church, we're the people. And the church and people start to become synonyms for each other. And you hear this language. You're going to see it in a couple of examples. Where does the church end and the government begin? Well, how do you decide that if the church is the people, right? So this is partly intentional from some people's vantage, from some people's use, and, and partly um, people aren't really sure where the boundaries lie between those two. This third one is the, seeing the United States as the new Israel. This is really important. One of the things you'll often see with Christian nationalism is a comparison of the United States of America to Israel. A lot of use of Jewish text, or what Christians often refer to as the Old Testament, where Israel is the older, smaller brother, and the United States is the younger, bigger brother. Those friends that I have that sit in my mind and sit right here, Adam said to me when I was talking to him about this and wanted to sort of check my material and see if I was saying it in a way he was confident with and how does he view Christian nationalism and all. He said, well, I don't really know if I want to call myself Christian nationalism. I think you people use that as a derogatory term. Uh, so I don't want to uh, assign, uh, align with it. Um, so I don't think he went to Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, website and bought her T-shirt that's on her website saying proud Christian nationalist. I don't think he wants to wear it literally on his T-shirt. But he said to me, help me understand this perspective. He said, in his view, and Christian, I think it's a classic Christian nationalist explanation, only two countries were born out of an idea from God. The nation of Israel, with the blessing of Abram, and the United States of America. They hold that in common. So you'll see people take anything said in the Old Testament in Jewish scriptures to the nation of Israel becomes applicable to the United States of America. And then they'll use Christian symbol or Jewish symbols and Jewish texts and Jewish artifacts, blowing shafars, wearing prayer. A lot of, if you've seen Christians that look and sound and feel like they're doing Jewish life, Jewish seders and prayer, that's a classic use of the United States as the new Israel, as well as the church as the new Israel. So for some people, you might come from a tradition where someone taught you that there's Israel and then the manifestation of that then is the people of the faith that follows in the way of Jesus, who was a Jew, right? Well, they've inserted the United States of America in there. You'll hear that on a couple of occasions as we go through. I'll show you a number of examples of that. The fourth is people enter into it through a holy war narrative, spiritual warfare and spiritual battles. They feel like there's something up in the world and, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly realm, spiritual warfare stuff. That's a big way. 
almost all Christian nationalists that I know, especially if they're way over on the on the ambassador side or even on the strong uh, uh, you know accommodator leaning into ambassador side, they really like talking about warfare and spiritual warfare and enemies and all the rest of it. It's a big attraction. And then the fourth is the role of the United States in God's plan for the world as one of the places where established anointed leaders come. So I'll give you some examples of each of these, okay? So here we go. Um, I'm going to show you a uh, sermon that kind of grabs about four of these together. It's really a treat. Uh, it's a good one. It's, it's Representative Boebert. Um, she's representative from Colorado. That clip you saw at the beginning where she says, I'm sick and tired of the separation of church and state junk. This is that sermon. Uh, you're going to watch about three minutes here. That comment comes somewhere toward just the end. I wanted you to see how she gets into it and where she's going with it. Now, what's important to notice is the applause at the beginning and the reference she makes at the end of this clip we're going to show where she turns to the pastor and says, thank you for your boldness. What they're applauding for at the start of the clip and what she's referring to at the end was this was a church in Colorado that did not close down during COVID and the pastor was criminally charged for it. Part of the new variant of Christian nationalism in America is from the COVID response in the United States. So it's a perfect metaphor in that sense. A lot of these folks who hold Christian nationalist views have said they think that Christianity is being downgraded in the United States because they feel that the churches should have been given exceptional status. In other words, you're essential workers. If the Walmart can be open, if airplanes can fly in small confined spaces, why can't we have church services? They thought religious communities should have an exemption. So that's part of their motivation. I think there's really good reasons we didn't. I'm a pastor. I get all this stuff. But that motivates some of it. That's what she's talking about. But you're going to hear in this little bit, you're going to hear all the stuff from the founding of the country to the new Israel. She goes straight from the book of Esther right into your county commissioner's office without, without a comma. And it's just an example of how this happens very frequently, very commonly. I, don't, I think what she does here is sort of a right down the middle, perfectly standardized kind of sermon sort of thing. And she's in a church service, uh, an evangelical church service, because you can tell there are two guitars uh, framing her on either side. So it's, it's, there's, there's, there's my tradition. So Just because it comes from someone who's elected or a bureaucrat doesn't mean that it's right. Amen. This isn't about Republican and Democrat. This is about evil and good, right and wrong. And if you go to Esther 4, in verse 14, Mordecai is talking to Esther. And he says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai is telling Esther, if you remain silent, if you don't show up to your board of county commissioners, if you don't show up to your school boards, if you don't let your elected representatives know what's on your mind, deliverance will come at some point from another place, but not from you. And you will be stuck in that bondage and suffer and perish because of it. The dreams and the gifts and callings that God has on you will remain dormant. If you are silent, you lose by default. That's why I run my mouth. 
often and give God glory. I don't want to lose by default. I don't want to be disqualified. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now we could take that scripture and make it really cliche. It sounds really pretty and it looks really good on the front of a notebook. But this is powerful because you are called to the kingdom for this time. And you are called to be bold, to go out with power. You are anointed to set at liberty the captives. Esther had that revelation. She said, I won't remain silent. In fact, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I will open my church and allow my people to assemble, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I will not mask our children in school, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Thank you for your boldness. Okay, so there it is, right? You can sort of see the movement for all of it. I mean, that move from what Mordecai says to Esther straight to the county commissioner's office and the, board, and the school boards. No distinction. People have studied hermeneutics or biblical application or something or know anything about the book of Esther. There's a lot going on there. I'm not going to get into, you know, arguing with someone who doesn't want to talk to me about her, the, how she framed up her sermon. But it's a pretty good example of what's going on and how people frame these kinds of conversations. So if you're in a certain world where your connection between church and people is fluid like that, the church is supposed to direct the government, the government, not the church, and because we the people and churches don't, aren't told by the government what to do, you can see how you could end up in a place where some of that would start to make sense. And it has real implications. You're going to hear from Nick in a moment. Uh, and Nick uh, comes, from the Pat, uh, comes from this area where the Patmos Library is, where a bunch of people decided to defund the library, to not fund the library in, the, in a special election in August. And so the library was going to close down, and then a famous author had to bail out the library in West Michigan to keep the library going because people organized specifically around the kinds of things that you heard uh, Representative Bobert saying there. And you're going to hear from someone named General Michael Flynn in a moment about the kind of work they're doing. They're doing this specific work all as, an, as, as a, a tactic inside of a Christian nationalist understanding. All right. So the church is the new Israel, and this uh, Christians using Jewish text stuff uh, is really important as well. This person here is the pastor of the church where Meyer Flores is. He's the one who started the Make America Godly Again movement. And um, this is also one where you see a number of these same streams coming together. The history of the United States in his estimation, as well as the, uh, seeing the United States as the new Israel. You'll see people in the church service. You'll see him there wearing uh, what's traditionally a, a Jewish prayer shawl, and you'll see him with it pulled over his head. You'll see them with a star of David in their church, and you'll see people blowing a shofar during church services. Very common in certain 
charismatic and Pentecostal expressions of Christianity, by the way. So this idea of seeing the United States as the new Israel, and then we should apply this, is where a lot of Christian nationalist arguments come from. In fact, the use of the passage from Second Chronicles. Do you know that passage? If my people, anybody finish it with me, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. That line, that phrase, 2 Chronicles 13, really popular. There are rooms where I could start out with, if my, and they're just into it like singing Born to Run in New Jersey, right? They're just right on it. They all know it because, it, because the narrative is that which was spoken to the nation of Israel is spoken to the United States, so we should move to times of prayer, and that's what will heal the land. So then prayer in school and prayer in places and prayer outside the White House and all this. So, so you'll see that kind of language that comes up in all, in all of this. So here we go. In fact, on the banner right behind him, it's, it's Second Chronicles is the passage that's blurred out there in the background on that poster. Thomas Jefferson said that you couldn't even call yourself a Christian, an, an, an American, if you weren't a God-fearing Christian. And we're going to proclaim that this nation belongs to you, God. Like it was founded in 1776, Lord. Lord, we pray for the supremacy of God in this nation again. How involved do you think someone like you should actually be in politics and in guiding policy? Oh, I think it's, we need to. I mean, we, I mean, we, like I said, we, this nation was founded under God. And so we've gone away from that. The church has but the nation, the, in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, yeah. it doesn't give any partiality to Christianity. In fact, the opposite, right? And uh -huh. how do you re reconcile those two things? It's, it's, it, there's freedom of religion, but at the same time, they understood that this whole foundation was built on the Word of God. If we understood, they don't want to force it on you, but they understood, okay, this Constitution will be built. They used 27 scriptures to to form the Constitution. But Thomas Jefferson, who you quoted uh -huh. on stage to your yeah. audience, he's very much the one that believed in the separation between church and state. So again, and, how... But you know what? It's funny because that separation of church that always comes up. Mm -hmm. But it was never a law. And that's the thing, like, as, as a pastor, I, I just wanted to, you know, to tell pastors, it's okay to talk about politics in your church. You won't get in trouble. Thank you, Jesus. In Cabrera's view, Mayra Flores is the beginning of something much bigger. Thank you, Jesus. And devil, we're going to kick you out. Kick you out of our cities, kick you out of our, our states, and kick you out of this nation, and kick you out of that White House in the name of Jesus. When you say something like the states belong to Judah, mm -hmm. or the states belong to Christianity, yeah. is that not dangerous? How am I being a dangerous society if I'm preaching what the Bible teaches and all we want to do is just... politicians are elected to yeah, serve the people, exactly. right? To serve everybody, not to serve a God. Yeah, but hold on, but we are electing them. So they're, they're representing yeah, us. And there's also Muslims that elect them. And yeah, exactly. I mean, right. So that's what I'm saying. So now as a voice, as, as, as a church, we have a right to vote for whoever we want to vote for. So, but if we don't use that voice, then what's the point then? Then we're not doing our jobs as Christians to vote for people that have our values. When you're born again, like mm -hmm. your mentality changes. I don't think like a, a Latino no more. I think like a man of God. Are there any candidates that make America godly again has endorsed? Myra was just the beginning. Mm. It was just, I mean, she opened a door for other people to walk through. 
I mean, you uh, yourself were there during her yeah, inauguration. Exactly. And if I remember correctly, you told Speaker Pelosi <laughs> that you wanted to take this country back yes, for God. That's right. And that was, let me tell you, it was, if I died today, it was worth it. Okay, so a lot going on in that one too, right? Now, no one should go and tell that person not to preach those things to his church. You get to. And confusion between where's the role of the citizens, motivation to who they're going to vote for versus what the politicians do. That's something we should all be working on. One of our encouragements here is, you're going to get to in a minute, is let's break the no talk rules and figure out how to talk about this. We don't have to talk about politics in the church as in telling people who to vote for. I've been a pastor for 30 years. If people did what pastors told them to do, that would be one thing, but they don't. So pastors, don't, I don't even waste your time telling people who to vote for. It doesn't work. But we could find ways to talk about this stuff where people get better at it, where our fluency, where our capacity to talk about where does the place stop from voter intention to representatives' actions? How do we do that? That's a really good question. We should be working. This, this democracy project, it's the project of all of us, right? So we should be having conversations like that. And then it's, that other stuff is just, okay, there's just a lot going on there. All right. This holy war narrative is a really big one. This, uh, this, uh, uh, flyer over on the left side is about a thing called the Great Awakening versus the Great Reset. This is Michael uh, Flynn's, General Michael Flynn's traveling roadshow of Christian nationalism pushing. I don't know if you've seen, last week, a few days ago, Frontline came out with a uh, special on, about it on PBS called Michael Flynn's Holy War. The Atlantic did an article about it just the other day. It's, they've been traveling for more than a year. I went to their event up in Batavia, uh, New York, up by Rochester, and we attended it. And some of us over on the right did a counter-protest, Faith, uh, Faithful America and Faith in Public Life and Vote Common Good. We did a public action saying these people don't represent us. You know, We're trying to be out saying you can be faithful and not be Christian nationalists. So we went to the Christian nationalist event. And then I went and toured around inside and went to sessions and talked to people and I like doing that kind of stuff that's in my job description and my personality profile um, and uh, had lots of great conversations with all kinds of people in there and really helps me to remember that these are people ordinary people just like the rest of us and had a really great conversation and you'll notice one of the things that um, uh, and so Michael Flynn's holy war language and he stands up and says things like I'm the general and I'm giving you orders and Christianity's under attack in America and we have to, all that stuff that's what's going on they're baptizing people and you'll see some sections of this but this little clip here is uh, of Michael Flynn uh, uh, from the, a special that just came out on Frontline uh, last week General Michael Flynn ladies and gentlemen Michael Flynn's political influence has only grown since the January 6th insurrection. Tomorrow we the people are going to be here and we want you to know that we will not stand for a lie. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? That's fair. Flynn has endorsed around 100 candidates for federal, state and even local offices raised millions and helped launch the Reawaken America tour that mixes politics and religion. I mean, there is a spiritual war and there is a political war. And they are going on. They're going on in this country right now. Since November, since the November Virginia election across the country, we have overturned 200 school boards in this country. 200. So Flynn is, is getting in front of audiences and he's using Christian nationalist rhetoric to rally people who, who want to be fed that because they want to be uh, excited, mobilized. They're gonna shut our churches down and they're gonna tell you, you're gonna get mandated to do this, you're gonna get mandated to do that. 
I Christian mean, nationalism threatens democracy because it is fundamentally anti-democratic by nature. It doesn't prioritize uh, the incorporation or the participation of, of, of all Americans. They say you're a Christian nationalist. Are you? What is that? I'm an Irish I think Catholic. We skip that question. He's an Irish Catholic general. Who I'm a follower of Jesus. How's that? 33 years okay. in the military serving yeah. this country. A little bit there at the end. They say you're a Christian nationalist. Are you? What is that? I don't even understand what that term is. That, that's not just a tactic. That's the way a lot of people feel. They're like, I honestly don't know what that term is. Michael Flynn knows what the term is. But a lot of other people, that's why he smirks about it, because right? he knows, oh, this is, the, this is this response I'm saying to our people of how you respond to this kind of question. So I believe he knows what it is. But other people don't. So just to say to someone, are you a Christian nationalist? <laughs> like, that's not uh, a great starting point with people. You can pull it together by the holy war language, though, and some of the other pieces that happened. So they showed you clips of the session. This is, I was at that very same one when Michael Flynn said that stuff, and I'm chatting with some of these people. Then I go into the tent, and you're going to hear a guy up on the stage, and what he's talking about is the insurrection, and you're going to hear him talking about the red state Walmart-type people, and all they were doing there was trying to do good Christian stuff, and people are spreading this false insurrection story that it was, that it was riddled with Christian nationalism. So that's what this part's about. Here's the thing. It's all kinds of people. This guy in a Let's Go Brandon shirt, which I find to be profane. All right, here we go. And I waded my way through crowds of hundreds of, there must have been a million people there. And all I saw was good, wholesome, Walmart-type red state Republicans, shofar-blowing charismatics, and a few oddballs dressed up like soldiers. But they were in the minority. Talking about the insurrection. Why would they misrepresent our movement to the point that the Christian leadership in the body of Christ doesn't even know they're slandering their own brethren when they agree with the stupid insurrection narrative? We were there to pray and stand in unity to see a reversal of what we saw as a theft. So there you get it, this idea that, you know, if your prayer brings you into the Senate dais and you violently taken over, you're just there to pray to try to do something good, and now the victim-villain narratives start to shift. It's all the stuff that you sort of see going on, so um, it's fairly, um, fairly common for people to use all that kind of language. So if you're talking to people and they've ended up in, you hear these kind, this kind of language, it's a good place to be in conversation with people or to start to recognize, oh, what is Christian nationalism more than somebody arguing about, you know, the foundation or what did Thomas Jefferson mean in his letter in 1802 to the Baptists in Virginia about the separation of church and state because there was arguments about Catholicism of the day. It's really stuff going on right now that has moved well beyond those conversations of just a letter to the, to the Baptists. Now, this last bit here is the role of the United States in God's plan. It's one that you might might not know about. Um, it's often referred to as the seven mountains of influence. The idea here is that, that the way that God is going to work in the world is by putting people of significant influence in places of power. They might be Christian, they might not, but they're going to have significant influence to bring about God's plans and desires. This is super important to a lot of people in the Christian nationalist movements. So it's not just government. It's seven of them, arts and entertainment, business, education, family, government, media, and religion. It's this anointed leader narrative, really common. One of the places that you see it is in government. And when I went into that, uh, the other side of the tent, I walked in on the other side. That preacher is now saying, 
when I get to the other side, is the question is not, is a president Christian? The question is, are they anointed by God for the job? Okay, so that's this Seven Mountains stuff. He's specifically talking about the next election and the past one, and uh, uh, that's this bit. Walking into the Lord. Great Awakening. Because all the Christians, if you ever talk to Christians during an election cycle, here's what they care about. Is he a Christian? Is he a Christian? They want to know if their candidate's a Christian. Is he a Christian? Let me tell you something. One of the worst presidents we ever had was Jimmy Carter, and he was a Christian. <laughs> the question you should be asking isn't, is he a Christian? You should ask, is he anointed and chosen by God for the job? Okay, so this is the argument. He was talking about King Cyrus before that. Maybe you heard that a little bit. This comes up a lot. A lot of Old Testament references to the kings and to holy wars and who's the anointed one of God to lead the people into victory. This happens a lot. Here's another example. This one comes from the Christian Broadcasting Network. This is when Mike Pompeo was the Secretary of State. And as the functioning Secretary of State, he's in Israel. And this is a part that the Christian Broadcasting Network. Okay, Walking firmly through the door, Mike Pompeo is a determined man. Both our Jerusalem Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell and I had the opportunity to interview the Secretary of State. It was part politics, part policy, and part spiritual, especially for a strong Christian who experienced a refreshing in the Holy Land. Could it be that, that President Trump right now has been sort of raised for such a time as this, just like Queen Esther, to help save the Jewish people from an Iranian menace? As a Christian, I, I certainly believe that's possible. Uh, it was remarkable. So we were down in the tunnels where we could see uh, 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago, if I have the history just right, uh, uh, to see the remarkable history of the faith in this place uh, and the work that our administration has done to make sure that uh, this democracy in the Middle East of this Jewish state remains, um, I'm confident that the Lord is at work here. See, that's again the kind of thing that Christian nationalists are like, finally we're hearing that spoken from the administrations. This is why so many people of some Christian traditions supported the Trump administration. If you've had a hard time wrapping your head around it, this is why they hear that and they're like, now they're speaking on my behalf. Michael Flynn said that stuff before he you know, was convicted of the crime that he admitted to. And Mike Pompeo says that and Mike Pence says that. All the Mikes were saying this stuff and other people were too. This is the kind of thing that, was, that goes on in the Trump administration. So. This is so clear to this point. When we go around saying we want to talk about the threat of Christian nationalism, people say we can't talk about that in our church because it seems like you're saying something against the Trump administration. And you're like, how could you get from Christian nationalism to that? This is how. Because it comes up so frequently and so often and so consistently. Here's Pat Robertson. Some of you might, might know who Pat Robertson is. There's a little bit where he's talking about the war in Syria, and he says this. However is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the President of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. You hear it? If he permits something to happen, he's going to lose the mandate of heaven. That's the Seven Mountains theory that he was chosen by God for a particular function. That's what Mike Pompeo was asked. Is Donald Trump the next, is he the Queen Esther in the story? He's going to lose the mandate of God. So the idea is not what's the faith of the person, but are they selected to do particular tasks that these folks would see as the agenda of God? It's a huge driver of Christian nationalism. So that's a lot to take in, and believe it or not, we're just scratching the surface. 
If you want to dig deeper, there are more resources at votecommongood.com. We've heard what Christian nationalism is, what it's not, and now we've heard why it's attractive and how a person might be swept into the Christian nationalism river via one of these five streams. In the next episode, we're going to respond to the question we get asked the most. Now what? We can see Christian nationalism is bad for Christianity and for democracy, but what do we do about it? How do I talk to my friends or family about this? Tune into episode four where we propose that the most effective tools against Christian nationalism are empathy and engagement. This series is brought to you by Vote Common Good, whether it's cycling along the entire U.S.-Mexico border to call for immigration reform, traveling the country in a bright orange tour bus holding get-out-the-vote rallies, or training candidates to connect with evangelical and Catholic voters. Vote Common Good is mobilizing people of faith to make the common good their voting criteria. We also have three weekly podcasts for you to check out. On Tuesdays, we talk about politics. On Wednesdays, we talk about faith. And on Thursdays, we talk about science and economics. This series is produced by me, Daniel Dietrich, at Common Good Media, and our theme music is composed by Pendulum Theory. We hope you'll hit that subscribe button and leave us a review, or even consider funding our work at votecommongood.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.